are listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. Last week, we talked to California cotton grower Canon Michael. So this week, we wanted to complement his story by zooming out and offering more of a bird's eye view of the cotton sourcing landscape. And here to help us with that is Crispin Agento, managing director at the Sorcery and former executive director of the Organic Cotton Accelerator. This is part one of that conversation. We kick off with some context: Why are brands disconnected from cotton growers in the first place? And why does this matter? What are the old steps that cotton goes through before it lands in a retail shop as a finished T-shirt? What's the role of a merchant? And what would it take to change the way cotton is sourced? Why is brands buying directly from growers such a radical idea? We then get into a question that's been on our minds for a while. If there is a shortage of sustainable cotton, however that might be defined, why doesn't this lead to higher prices to growers? How is risk and reward distributed across cotton supply chains? This inevitably leads us to an incredibly hot topic: cotton traceability. Tune into part two, which we've also released today, for Crispin's thoughts on cotton traceability and beyond. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to grow the conversation at Manufactured Underscore Podcast, or sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. Crispin, there are a lot of different sustainable cotton initiatives already out there. Why did you decide to start the sorcery, and what was the gap that you sought to fill with it? A lot of the learnings that came from working with a number of brands at this at the Organic Cotton Accelerator um, made me see a real gap in the market, which was a commercial gap, which we call it the sorcery, the chasm, right, where demand from brands. On for sustainable cotton or sustainable products is on one side, and the actual supply of that sustainable product, in this case fiber, is on the completely opposite end of the supply chain. Sustainable cotton is not made in a fabric mill or in a cut and sew facility. It's made on a farm, often far away from where the、uh, you know from from the product itself. There's a huge disconnect there. You have an agricultural industry that's meeting with a、um, With the textile industry, of course, and there's this chasm even in between that. So, to be more explicit, I guess on the history was the gap was how do we bring brands down to the farm to ensure that they have the integrity, the quality, the impact that is necessary to create, I would say, real sustainable fiber. And real, measurable, and meaningful impact. And what do you think was preventing brands from being connected to farms in the first place? Largely, just、uh, I would say general sourcing practices and behavior is one. Financial risk is two, and a lack of 
general knowledge. You know, mm. I mean, there's so many instances where you talk to a designer and they don't really know how a pair of jeans are constructed. You expect that same designer or that merchandiser to really understand how cotton is grown, ginned, spun, etc. You know, when I talk about, you know, MOQs or things like that down at the up or in, uh, in upstream and I say, well, look, this is, this is what lay down is at a spinner. These are the, these are the requirements for a spinner. When I explain what mass balance is, which of course is a term that's used by BCI. And BCI stands for the Better Cotton Initiative. And we'll put some links in the show notes for more information on that if you're interested. Mass balance is just a, is just NGO speak for blending. And blending here refers to mixing different types of cotton or cotton of different origins together. And Canon talks a lot about that in last week's episode. So be sure to check those out if you haven't listened to them already. And managing performance risk to create a yarn at a quality and a price that you can sell and make a margin. That's it. That's, it's not a, it's not a, a practice. It's, it's just the way business is, mm. you know, for example. So Sorcery is setting out to connect brands directly to growers because you believe that that's what's necessary to create meaningful impact, as well as to address this sort of weird gap where you have a lot of brands who want to buy sustainable cotton, again, however that might be defined, and not enough supply. So how are you going about doing that? Sure. So, you know, we have three programs, essentially, or, or service kind of pillars. Um, we do strategy. We help brands and suppliers develop strategy to create cotton portfolio, assess what their risks are, um, look at their merchandising and product calendars so that those align with the agricultural calendars, for example, um, and the requirements that are needed, the, the, the deliverables across that um, calendar. Um, so, for example, right now we're sourcing cotton for for 2022 collections fall winter. And by now, Crispin is referring to January 2021 when this episode was initially recorded. Because the cotton is harvested next fall, it'll go into the supply chain early next in 2022, and then it'll land in shelves, you know, anywhere from spring to the end of summer for fall winter, depending on the, the calendars of the brands. Um, the other thing that we do is we will then engage with the various supply chain partners that are nominated. So everybody from there's their cut and sew facility, which is a direct vendor generally of the brand, to their fabric mill, to the, the, the spinning mill, to the uh, merchant, generally is between the spinning mill and the gin, and then the gin to the farmer. And then in some cases, uh, the gin, there's a, there's a middleman that sits between the gin and the farmer, particularly in smallholder uh, scenarios like in China and India and uh, somewhat in like West Africa and and uh, and and like Turkey, for example. So it's a long chain. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. suddenly feel we crossed the industry. We are no longer in textile. We are in agriculture now. There's no such thing as a cotton farmer. There's a farmer that happens to grow cotton, but on most cotton farmers, particularly those that have employed sustainability practices, are doing rotational crop or cover crop. They're doing maize, they're doing soya, they're doing peanuts, for example, in the United States. So it is agriculture, a hundred percent. It's just this this agricultural product is in that they that fifty million farmers around the world grow, you know, once or for some of them twice a year if they're doing a, a two season system where they have the the, the, the irrigation is demanded by this sector to the tune of 26 million 
metric tons a year. So we're not going directly to the farmer in the sense, I mean, we are, but we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're bringing everybody to the table. So we facilitate mm-hmm. these, these cross trend, we facilitate these cross supply chain relationships as well as the transactions that happen. And then the third pillar that I didn't talk about is called, um, facilitate, um, which is effectively once all of the relationships, the agreements are in place, now we're actually, the wheels are starting to turn. So seed goes in the ground. Farmer knows what he needs to do in terms of farming. You know, the expectation is that there's a relationship with a merchant or a gin. That gin's going to produce the, you know, gin the cotton, sell it to the spinner, et cetera. And in some cases, when you are at that level, depending on the, again, the circumstances, you can navigate around some of the people there or the, the other, you know, largely the merchants, the brokers. But again, that's not our, our objective. And, and they, if they're engaged in this process, they're actually a benefit to the process rather than a detractor, right? The merchant. So, the merchant. So for example, most, you know, what merchants do is again, they manage performance risk of their, their buyer. And that can come in the form of logistics. It can come in the form of finance. It can come in the form of just market knowledge. And so it also, you know, merchants also play a critical role because if this is going to get a little bit kind of That's um, okay. technical. That's okay. That's what we like. <laughs> you, you have to understand a, a commodity system is a push-based system, mm-hmm. right? So you're pushing the product into the market based on production where the textiles the textile system is generally a pool-based system. We only react to when we need the product. And very mm. few actors along the chain are willing to maintain huge amounts of inventory because the inventory is expensive and it exposes them to too much risk. So merchants play that role to balance a push system with a pool system and they sit in the middle to, to essentially, you know, it's like they translate that. And that's like it, a, they're an important role. It's like a dam on the river somehow. When yeah, that's a good, that's, that's, yeah. The merchant is like a dam adjusting, not control the volume of the, the water when it's too much uh, or when it's Correct. too little. Generally speaking, our work is quote unquote done once the cotton has made itself, made it, made it, made its way into yarn because it's locked. But then again, it's not always the case because there are incidences where, you know, a, a knitter or a weaver might use cones from our project that might be more expensive or might be organic. And then they'll use that on the weft and then they'll just use something else on the warp. Mm. And then you've got, you've got fraud, right? Right. <laughs> because the fabric is expecting 100% organic or 100% BCI or 100% carbon positive cotton or whatever that might be whatever attribute mm. it is. So you have to maintain that. What are the, what are the, what is that, the, the, the physical movement of the product? And, and you have to step inside the shoes of each of the suppliers to understand what their pressures are. That's what I was going to ask you. Cause when you started talking about this, we really started and I asked you sort of the, what the gap was that you were trying to fill. We, you talked really about from the brand side and needing to be able to connect all the way down to the cotton farmer um, for this transparency, which you've just mentioned, but what, what's in it for the, what's in it for the farmer? What's the value proposition for them? So it depends again on, on the case. 
I mean, different farmers, different countries, different regions, it's not an answer. Um, what's really in it for them, most farmers will tell you flat out what they want is to mitigate their risk. And then you can mitigate risk through money and or commitments. Mm-hmm. So, and it's usually a combination of both, right? So if I'm a farmer that's an organic farmer, for example, and I'm going to put, you know, this non-GMO seed in the ground, there's a risk in doing that. There's a risk in not being able to use synthetic pesticides and fertilizers because I can potentially expose myself to yield loss, right? There's a risk in then once I have the fiber and I'm ready to sell it, that the markets are so volatile that I don't recover my costs, right? So effectively, this engagement, and this is not a popular word, but we're decommoditizing the commodity because we are understanding all of the different risk profiles that each of the actors along the chain to then find some sort of synthesis in that so that everybody's profitable and everybody makes money and that we're all happy and we're excited to see this product make it from this agricultural landscape to a retail store here in Europe. Yeah. Can you give an example? Because on, I think on an abstract level, it makes sense, but I want to yeah. see if we can get it really concrete. So like, what does it yeah. mean? Does it mean, for instance, that there's a deposit for seed payments? Does it mean that there's a commitment to purchasing a certain volume and what happens then if that falls through? How does it, how does, I mean, I don't know. Are you able to give an, an example? Yeah, absolutely. So it's both of those. Those are, those are two, I would say tools in the, in the toolbox that can be used. Mm-hmm. So for example, let's just take, let's take a, a, a simple model. Let's look at Australia. Australia is, produces some of the most high quality cotton in the world. It's, it's relatively long staple. It's very clean. Um, uh, a lot of spinning mills around the world need it to blend with lower quality cottons to stabilize the yarn, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's got a strong whiteness count. So like for shirting and things like that, that need to be really crispy and beautiful as opposed to being dyed like denim. Um, or you might have like a yellow cotton or a different thing. So, but let's take Australia. So Australia, about 50% of that crop roughly on average pre-sells a year in advance of it actually being planted or six months in advance of it being planted because they know that the market needs it, right? So that's called forward contracting, mm-hmm. right? So it, it's a practice that exists in the cotton sector. Now, there is some risk that those cotton farmers, uh, you know, still have for, let's say, the other 50% of their crop. But generally speaking, and the only reason why they're only committing to 50% or 60% is based on, you know, yield projections. And then you have to leave some play because of water shortages and other environmental factors. Really, most of the cotton farmers in India sell their entire, or in, in Australia sell their entire crop every year at the price that they want. And they even get a premium called an Australian basis on top of the futures price for it because of the quality profiles. That's what I, so when you say 50% of this cotton pre-sells, it's being sold roughly. on a, uh, yeah, I mean, roughly, but it's being, can you, who, who's buying it? The merchants or is it on a? Can be merchants or, or spinners directly. You know, they're making, they're, they're, they're writing the contract. It's not that they're exchanging money per se, but they're saying that, look, we'll, we will take this from you. And, you know, in this world, contract is, is a contract, right? It's, yeah. <laughs> So, um, I know, it's, I mean, sorry, it's a, not funny, it's not funny, but it, but in the, in the Australian context, and if this is a spinner, there is probably some legal jurisdiction there 
to enforce that contract, right? Versus maybe in other countries that don't have that structure or that, you know, you can offshore the real liability if you're not fulfilling or performing on that contract, then that's an issue, right? But that's mm-hmm. also, you know, to the context that you guys work in, we need to have an international system for enforcement. So if a, if a supplier in, in Cambodia or in Vietnam says, look, I haven't been fulfilled, one, you go to a blacklist, and two, you remit that to a governmental body here in Europe, and then some organization here in Europe sues that brand or sues that supplier, right? Where there is jurisdiction and there really is compensatory structures that will make people step in line, right? These merchants and spinners who are buying, in the case of Australia, who are buying some cotton up front, um, even though you said money doesn't change hands, they so they don't necessarily have a role in supporting the farmers with financing or up with their with their cash flow. But what? Yeah, yeah. yeah? Is that no, right? And not generally. Yes, that's correct, but not in all cases. Again, it just depends on the contract. But again, a lot of these farmers are large farmers. They have access to working capital on their own. Mm. It's, not, it's mm-hmm. different from a smallholder context where they're, I mean, literally, if you want to call them from the world's, the, the, the Western perspective, they're the world's poor. There are people that make $500 a year, literally. Mm. You know, that's a different scenario. That's okay. And then my, my next question was, why, what's, and maybe this is sort of what you were trying to say when you talked about all the different things that make Australian cotton unique, as well mm-hmm. as the fact that it's in Australia and relatively strong rule of law, et cetera, et cetera. But what makes Australia different? I mean, why, why does, why does the process of selling cotton work this way in Australia and not elsewhere? Largely quality and because there's always a demand. So you put that in the context of sustainability. Right. And this goes mm-hmm. to sustainable cotton. Sustainable cotton, there's a massive shortage of supply. And there's huge demand. Right. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, it still is a generally traded as a commodity that doesn't reflect real economic principles of supply and demand. And that's in some cases because it's not translated that way downstream. I mean, BCI, the minute that it leaves a farm gate is generally speaking a commodity fiber and that's the way it's been designed. The same thing exists for organic to some extent. I want to go more into supply and demand because I know it's sure. something that you're <laughs> passionate about, but it's also something that when Jesse and I were discussing really piques our curiosity because in our world, in the cut and sew world, one of the reasons or one of the things that's often cited as the reason why manufacturers or at least cut and sew facilities have so little power relative to their customers, relative to, to brands, is because there's an oversupply of garment factories. So yeah. it, that makes it very easy for a brand to kind of jump around and the moment it's cheaper elsewhere to, to, to take their order somewhere else. And, yeah. and so and yet here in the cotton, in the what I hear you saying when we're talking about cotton is that there's actually an undersupply of um, high quality cotton or, or sustainable cotton, however, however one might define that relative to the demand. And so, you know, in the cut and sew world, one of the things you hear is like, well, maybe with COVID now there are these factories that are closing, maybe it'll shrink the supply. And although that's 
going to be really tough for all the people that they employ and so on and so forth. Maybe it will lead finally to higher prices. Maybe it will balance the negotiating table a little bit and lead to better terms. But now here in the cotton, I, yeah, I hear you saying, actually, there's a, there's a, there's an undersupply of cotton and still it, you know, life is really tough. So why, why is that? It's, it's power. That's it. It's simply power structures and stability to access competitive working capital, period. That's it. So we talk about supply and demand, but what's behind that supply and demand is capacity, right? So within a particular factory, you can say, this is our capacity. We can, we have a, you know, the way our floor is laid out and we don't need to get into the details, but we have a, you know, a standard allowable minute of X on t-shirts and we have so many people selling these t-shirts and we can do 10,000 units a month, right? And that Mm -hmm. can ebb and flow to some extent Mm -hmm. as they do. And it's, you know, but again, do we have too much capacity at the cut and sew level or do we have too many suppliers? Right. And I'd argue that we, we, we don't have too many suppliers. We have, we have, um, shifting capacities, I guess. Right. And I think that's an important thing to look at within the cotton context. We have a huge disparity of supply and demand when it comes to sustainable cotton. But again, what happens and we don't know this for sure because it's really difficult to do real like a forensics and accounting on where the flow of that cotton, but it's commodity cotton that's filling the gaps. It certainly is that way for organic cotton. We saw it firsthand with recently with, 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 with GOTS. And GOTS is the Global Organic Textile Standard. And we'll put a link for more information about that in the show notes as well. Where 20,000 metric tons was literally con- conventional cotton being sold as uh, organic cotton. And uh, to fulfill a, a demand, right? And that's just the tip of the iceberg. That I, I can t- I can tell you firsthand knowledge. That's the tip of the twenty. That's just like a here's your twenty thousand tons. I I would argue that in organic cotton, it's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of metric tons of conventional cotton that are sold in the name of organic. So it dilutes the actual real supply of it. Does that make sense? And so those farmers that are doing real organic cotton are only able to sell it into the market at a, at a, at a commodity price, generally speaking. Now, this year, that's been different. When you say commodity cotton, are you, ta- are you using that interchangeably with conventional cotton? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a commodity, okay. just a, okay. the fungibility, yeah, yeah. Okay. Of, you know, a thing that exists. So, so what you're saying is there's a shortage of sustainable cotton, whether that's organic or defined in a different way. Um, but that that shortage is basically filled in, let's say, under the table with conventional cotton. And because there's no traceability, you know, there uh, there's not much that ca- that farmers can within the within a farmer's power to actually uh, say, well, to prove it. Yeah, I mean, organic's a good example, but let's just take a, a kind of step back. It's there's like I said, when fiber leaves the farm gate meaning it's sold to a middleman or it's sold directly to a gin or something um, in the smallholder context. Uh, it, that gin, generally speaking, isn't buying it because of its attributes for sustainability, right? It's buying that cotton because it has quality characteristics or because it, you know, for a number of reasons. But it, And then what's, what's what the only thing that makes that cotton sustainable in terms of you know, its per- perception is a, is a certificate or some sort of document, but there's no real way to, 
there's no management structures to ensure that the 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 segregation of that cotton at the farm to the gin, the gin to the spinner. And then as we said, the reason why mass balance exists is because it needs to be blended unless, you know, the brand or the buyer from that spinner is willing to absorb the additional costs of having a a, 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 a pure a pure fiber. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's really interesting because you just mentioned uh, the demand of organic cotton is huge. However, the supply is uh, it doesn't catch up with the demand, and the gap was filled by the conventional cotton. And I think maybe another reason is the organic suppliers don't have that uh, how you call that um, financial reward, or don't have that extra motivation, or how to say they maybe organic farm, organic cotton farmers if they do supply try to meet up with the demand they will face a huge financial risk and that may be hurt their motivation yeah. and in fact they will not do that yeah but the, again in most organic cotton farmers you know the gins a lot of most of the gins that are selling the certificates and the spinners are selling they're they're being rewarded for the organic cotton I know you've been very vocal because about the fact that. You know, there's a perception that farmers are paid more or paid a premium for organic cotton or sustainable cotton, however you might define it, but that 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 you say that that's not the case. So, um, yeah. what what would it take to to change that? Do you think knowledge and engagement? So let's just take for example, we got a quote for some organic cotton out of India, and there's a huge slowdown right now. There's a huge supply constraint. Um, for a number of reasons that I won't get into. Um, for, I think it was 260, something like that, 260 a kg, which is about 30, 40% increase on what, on top of what the price of conventional is right now. And there's mm -hmm. sometimes normally there's a slight difference, but if you break those costs, what's behind that cost down, the there's, you know, the, the cost of the seed cotton, it takes three kgs of seed cotton to make one kg of lint. And then there's a whole bunch of other cost structures in the tra transportation market sets, which is taxes, uh, training, perhaps management fees for like a, a group. And you wonder, you're like, all right, well, where is the additional 40 cents coming from for this organicness, right? Well, it's going to the pockets of the gin or it's going to the pockets of the spinner or whomever is selling it, right? The farmer still is so that removed from that process that they're still probably just getting the farmer who's grown organic cotton compared to the farmer that's growing the conventional cotton across the way is still selling it to the same price as the conventional cotton farmer, generally speaking, unless you intervene or unless you're working with a group that is willing to provide that open costing and has, the, you know, it's, it's more of like a social enterprise type of operation. So within sorcery, I mean, you, when I want to go back to kind of what we opened with when you described what sorcery is doing and getting all these various yeah. players around the table, are you then also mediating kind of the, I guess in some ways, um, maybe distribution of wealth is, or of reward is a word for it, or maybe yeah. another way to frame it is transparency in terms of cost transparency. How are you, how do you, how do you cope with that? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, we tend to use the word facilitating, mediating, mm -hmm. I guess is another word, but it's more kind of acrimonious. It's more just getting various entities and parties to see value in 
a different way as well as to mitigate their own risks. So I asked you, we kind of covered what was in it for the brand and also what was in it for the farmer. But now another question comes to mind, which is what would be, what would be in it for, for the dinner or the, uh, the merchant? So what's in it, you know, there needs to be incentives across the chain, but the mm -hmm. expenses need to be fair and evenly distributed, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a number of different mechanisms that you can employ to look at different incentive structures. But it, you know, when I say true cost, we tend to think, well, true cost should be like the, 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 the fact that, um, somebody is paid fairly for what they're doing, right? But in the case of organic cotton, there's people are being paid unfairly, meaning they're being paid too much for doing certain things, right? Well, I would say that's so, true in other parts of the fashion industry too, right? Of course. Well, that's, it's, it's power structures. So what is the true cost? So when I talk about that phrase, with brands and say, look, what are you paying for your t-shirt, your organic cotton t-shirt? And they're like, oh, well, we're paying whatever, $3.50 FOB. And I said, okay, well, how many, you know, obviously that price is contingent on volume and a whole bunch of other, you know, factors. But if you were to compare Ceteris Paribus, that conventional cotton t-shirt with the, with the organic cotton t-shirt, let's just say the conventional is three bucks and the uh, organic is 50 cents. Where in the supply chain is that 50 cents value attributed to, right? Where is that the 50 going? 50 cents more, the 50 cents extra. 50 cents more. If you were to take that 50 cents and you were to say, okay, 50 cents on one t-shirt is akin to $2 roughly at the farm level in terms of one mm -hmm. kg of rent makes about four t-shirts if you look at loss rates across the chain, right? So now you've got $2 per kg of rent at the farm level, right? How do you say, okay, well, to have the right seeds, to have training, to have incentives for the farmer, to have all these things, it actually only costs 30 cents per kg. Now you have a 70 cent delta in there. Where along the chain is that 70 cents being used? Now, does it cost more money to buy organic cotton? And does that cost more money for financing for a gin or for, yes. So, okay, let's cover that. Does it cost more money to segregate at that gin to some extent and manage it? Yes, let's cover that. Does it cost more money to segregate that at the spending level? Let's cover that, right? Because there's the, these are managing their risks, right? right? Now you've got your yarn. As I said earlier, our work kind of stops at yarn. It does not cost a cent more to load organic right. cotton cones onto a circular machine than to load your conventional cotton cones. It also doesn't cost more to cut and sew an organic cotton t-shirt versus a conventional cotton t-shirt. You've got your bolt of fabric. You've laid it out. It's settled. You're cutting it. You're selling it. Same thing. So why is it that when you ask for organic at the finished goods level, FOB, it's 50 cents more? So if you can get down up or go down upstream rather and kind of manage those cost structures, you can prevent inflationary cost structures at fabric and cut and sew, right? Where you just put the, the, the six letter word organic in front of the in front of the um, the word cotton, and it's like putting wedding in front of cake. Sugar costs the same, water costs the same, flour costs the same, but why you put wedding in front of it, it's 10 times more. Right. That's organic so, cotton for you, right? It's pretty, like it's, I mean, it's what you're doing then is, is, is pretty radical in a sense because you are facilitating, but really what you're facilitating in a way is a 
fairer distribution of risk and reward so that, like you said, that the people who are actually taking on the additional risk of producing organic cotton are... Or sustainable cotton in general. Yeah. Or sustainable cotton in general. Yeah. Or sustainable cotton in general are, are basically supported in that, whether that's in terms of a higher price at the end or whether that's in terms of the financial risks that they assume um, up front. Yeah. And I mean, let's take a real world example. So it, it, it is a distribution, but it's not done in like the Cesar Chavez type of way. It's done in what is smart finance, what is smart economics, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. In terms of every party's benefited. Like, for example, the goal here, the ultimate goal here is to create more sustainable cotton, whether it's organic or BCI or whatever, right? And of course, yes, having the measurements to make sure that that's really happening on the on the farm level and, and holding the farmer accountable, et cetera, incentivizing that farmer. But that's the ultimate goal. And to do sustainability, to do ethics, to do whatever you uh, and it there's a cost to that, mm-hmm. right? Because nor economics in general, the principles of capitalism are to get to the lowest common denominator with respect to efficiency. Well, we've achieved that through unsustainable cotton. It's true. You know, and we've achieved that through power structures that press down these prices to make it affordable. Now, if you intervene at that level, you, you can, you can, again, you mitigate the risk of the gym, you mitigate the risk of those people that are involved to make those commitments. If you think about it this way, and this is a project I'm working on right now, every cotton, every product that comes is shipped from a, put into a container and whatever, Shenzhen or wherever, shipped to the United States, shipped to Europe, has roughly, I would say, 15 to 20% of interest in that cost, if not more. Just interest alone, because the cost mm-hmm. of finance for a lot of suppliers is expensive. The longer they hold on to inventory, the longer they are waiting for payments, it costs them money. You multiply that over four or five tiers, you know, in, in a year, and you say, okay, look, cotton was hold by a merchant. Or a gin, his access to finance is 18%. It was held for three months, whatever that is. Spinners holding that cotton for so long. So over time, it compounds and you have that. So how can you use smarter finance? How can we leverage the finance of the brands to go down? One brand we're working with right now is thinking about becoming a merchant themselves mm. and opening up an entity so they can actually buy the cotton and then sell it to their spinners and then control those costs while being able to pay the farmer a fair rate that incentivized the farmer to do it. Terry Townsend, he's the head of ICAC uh, formally. And that's the International Cotton Advisory Committee. He said, look, if, 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 if organic cotton globally was five bucks a, a, a pound, every farmer in the world would switch. Like that. So yeah, we're done. Cool. And I've seen it. Right? But again, it's not because it comes down to economics and you have to create economic incentives for the right parties where the stuff is actually made. It's a lot to think about. <laughs> and it's very it's, ambitious. It's a lot to think about. Yeah. It's ambitious, yeah. yeah. It's very ambitious because you're not talking about a specific brand or a specific group. You are actually talking about a system contains so many different um, parties. They all have their own financial 
risks and the financial benefits they want to they want to catch, they want to keep actually. And you are talking about redistribute the value. That is uh, that is just a move. This part of value move it down. It's like uh, re uh, re slicing the cake. It's yeah. It's a, it's re slicing the cake. It's it's you know again. It's not um, at least the way we see it is it's it's. For for us, it's largely about risk and or making the cake sliced in a way that's more sensible. In the yeah, shared reward, it's mm-hmm. it's shifting. It's shifting. It, you know, we say we call it. It's, it's a transformative way of sourcing. You mm-hmm. know, you know, and 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 it really is. And we teach brands how to do this. I mean, one brand we worked with in Europe. You know, early on, I trained their teams for three days. And then I went back to them like two months later. I was like, you guys need help? They're like, no, we got it. We did this in India. We did it in Pakistan. We're doing it in West Africa now. We're doing this. I like, oh, great. So I just taught you all of my kind of quote intellectual property. And now I don't have any business from you anymore, which is fine. (laughs) But that's ultimately the goal. I still maintain the fact that I want sorcery. Our business objective long term is to go out of business because we have created a system. we've, We've shifted the way that people source cotton. And that's directly from the grower, as we say. And then once most brands are doing that to, for their own interests and, and other suppliers are doing that for their own interests and the farmer's being rewarded, then look, we'll step out. And on that note, we're going to close this episode, but be sure to tune in to part two of the conversation where we talk to Crispin about traceability. And we've also released that episode today, so you can continue right on listening if you'd like. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.